Kia ora koutou everyone and welcome to the Hoon and a Hoon around the news over the horizon with Peter Bale. It's fantastic to have fantastic to have so many people in here from the Kaka. It's lovely to have you at the end of the week and to share a beer or a wine or some sort of beverage with you all. Peter, yes, it's at three thirty, Bernard. That's, a, yeah, that's that early is, even by my standards. Well, I find with lock I find with lockdown that the sun starts to move over the yard arm a little bit earlier. Yeah, luckily we're heading into summer too, so we can we can enjoy it. And there has to be something good about a lockdown. And surely a, a Friday afternoon Zoom drinks is it. For those who don't know, Peter is a, a long time a colleague. I was going to say old colleague. He's not old, but <laughs> a long time colleague from my days at Reuters and FT Market Watch in London, and has spent an awful lot of time covering all sorts of news. And uh, we like at the end of the week just to go do a lap around the traps of the big global uh-huh. news events. It's wonderful. Now, <clears throat> Peter also produces a weekly email for the spin-off on uh, global news events, the Weekly World Bulletin. And uh, Peter, you might want to start off with a quick look at what were the big events for you this week to profile yeah. in the email. Yeah, thanks, Bernard. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's the third week in which I've started with Afghanistan, which will surprise no one. But what I've been trying to look at a little bit more this week is the implications of this. And I, you have to wonder, I, I don't really buy the whole US in decline narrative, except that the US looks like it's in decline, Bernard. Yep. You know, this is in a most extraordinary withdrawal. Biden's been on the defensive. It looked chaotic. We've I've already posted many things about how it was not necessarily didn't it didn't necessarily have to end this way. I don't think this fiasco that happened was inevitable. And of course, it's irritated at the very least the rest of NATO, many critical allies, and the lack of the apparent evident lack of consultation from Biden really takes people back to that Trump era when you know it was American for America first. And yet Biden, of course, said America's back. So nobody really knows what that means now. And, and I think one of the most interesting aspects of this, if you think back to Bill Clinton, if you remember him, and Tony Blair, and it's worth remembering that Tony Blair overlapped also with George W. Bush and took us took the UK and many other countries yeah. with them into Afghanistan and, of course, then into Iraq, which was the, the huge mistake. And Biden talked today about ending an era of major military operations oh. to remake other countries. Oh. Oh. Now, I don't know how that era is going to be compatible with the United Nations, United States that... Which, that's okay. We've got some people joining who have not muted, but that's okay. <laughs> it sounded like quite a good show. Yeah, yeah. Poye or uh, something similar yeah. to that. So, yeah, I think it's a very interesting issue of what of how the United States is going to behave, whether it's going to be the global policeman that it's been, certainly since the Clinton years and if arguably since the end of the Cold War and arguably before that. What's going to happen with Venezuela now, for example? I think it's a very interesting, and I'll be you know, staying, staying in touch with it. And, and it's amusing, Russia and China, of course, are rubbing their hands with us. And I just want to read a tweet from a, a rather extraordinary woman called Margarita Simonian, who's the editor-in-chief of RT, the Russian broadcaster. And she's really quite an extraordinary cheerleader for Vladimir Putin and fulfills a very valuable role. And she said, quote, the moral of the story is don't help the stars and stripes. They just hump you and dump you, close quotes. 
Yeah, this uh, is the thing. Um, when you've got yeah. these leaders in <clears throat> Europe saying and wondering, can we trust the Americans to protect us from people like Putin and talking about whether they need to improve and increase the mm -hmm. scale of their own militaries, yep. that is... Um, that's slightly ominous and also something we should look at here in this part of the world. We've got to remember that just this week, Taiwan has said that it can't really cope with if, if China really wanted to attack it. <clears throat> no. we, we saw the Americans put their aircraft carriers through the Straits of Taiwan. But would America really defend Taiwan? And you've got the Australians also saying, gee, can we really rely on the Americans? Do we need to, for example, create our own nuclear weapons? So, mm. Who said that, Bernard? Did somebody sensible in Australia say, say that? Or was it Gladys Berejiklian saying she wanted the <laughs> New South Wales <laughs> that's, nuclear that's weapon? Right. She wants the elimination strategy. Mm. No, uh, this is Peter Dutton, of course, who is the, the wackiest of the... Yeah, uh, nothing if not bucolic. Yes. Nothing if not... Yeah. Ballistic. He's ballistic. <laughs> exactly. He went ballistic. Now, it's obviously, it's pretty wild for the Australians to talk about this, but they are poking China in the eye quite regularly. And we saw some fresh news out of Australia this week that it's very clear that as soon as Australia started to suggest an inquiry into the COVID outbreak in Wuhan mm. with the World Health Organization, China got its hackers onto the job and straight into the Australian tech systems of their biggest companies and, of course, their biggest departments. So it's, it's a real thing, and it's something we have to think about now because with Britain well and truly not helping us much at all, yeah. we, we have to rely on Australia if China was to get... Or we just make, have appropriate relations with China. I mean, I was really struck also, there was a fanta similarly fantastic quote from the foreign ministry spokesman in China saying, American myth down, more and more people are awakening. And I, and I think this is absolutely correct, that a lot of people will be no longer looking... Do you want to turn that off? Uh, I'll, I'll have a... You can mute them? I... Yeah, to the, to, you know, people will not necessarily be looking to the United States for support on this. It's very interesting to see today Israeli aircraft went in. I think we can rely on, is on Israel very strongly defending itself. And I, I hadn't thought until you mentioned Australia in this context that there may be some proliferation issues here. We know Saudi Arabia would be an interesting candidate in getting its own nuclear weapons. And of course, you've got Pakistan right next door to Afghanistan, which has been a, a deeply unreliable ally to the West during the Taliban period and now faces the Taliban on its own border, a creation of its own. So that's it's a bit spooky at the moment. Uh, I, I was also struck in that thing I did for the sp spin-off, Anders Fogg Rasmussen, Rasmussen, the former uh, head of NATO, called the withdrawal embarrassing and said that it would be a folly if we stopped thinking about human rights and intervening for the protection of, of uh, freedom and democracy. The, the difficulty is you've got you know a really great, interesting set of authoritarian states on the rise. You've got Russia, you've got China, and of course you've got the smaller ones, Hungary, Poland is becoming more, more authoritarian, Brazil, and populism is not dying at the moment. No, and I can see from your uh, email in 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 Russia, it's not a good place to be a reporter. We forget about um, what freedom means and how difficult it is when your government is um, hostile to a free media. Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually, because they've changed the classification of what a foreign agent is, so that virtually any Russian... So that virtually any Russian... <laughs> That's all right. We got there. 
Yeah, good. So that any virtually any Russian reporter who has any connection overseas uh, or receives any money from overseas is determined to be a foreign agent and therefore can be can have their work shut down. And this week, the BBC correspondent, or one of the two BBC correspondents in Russia, Sarah Rainsford, who's been there for something like 20 years and has devoted her life to covering Russia and the former Soviet Union, has been banned for life. It wasn't anything she did. It was just a kind of overreach by, by the Putin. Mayor, she was sitting there on the top. You know, and, uh, part of it. She was too busy handing the thing out to me. Blair, I'm just going to get you Go for it. And so she's been banned for life. It's a very interesting thing. The, the other story that I highlighted in the spin-off thing, Bernard, was one of the most, I think it's, it, this, this is going to be one of the most defining stories in the United States over the next few years. Texas effectively banned abortions after six weeks. And many people who are pregnant uh, up to six weeks don't know. And there is virtually no basis for having an abortion after that. And the other extraordinary thing about this is that individuals can dob in either people having an abortion, seeking an abortion, or helping someone have an abortion and claim a $10,000 bounty. Oh. So the, you could dob in the Uber driver who, who drove somebody to a to a um, abortion clinic and it would uh, you would get a $10,000 sort of bounty. It is the most extraordinarily evil, if you like, uh, restriction on on women's rights, on what, on what has been a, a woman's right to choose for the last, uh, since the 1970s, really, since this landmark piece of, legi- piece of, of law, the Roe versus Wade decision of the US Supreme Court. And what looks like it's happening at the moment is that the Supreme Court is leaning conservative. You know, we know that a couple of very strong Catholic, openly Catholic advocates, strong Catholic advocates were appointed to the Supreme Court by Donald Trump. So yesterday there was a five to four decision effectively splitting the conservatives and the and the more liberal members of the Supreme Court to reject an application to hold up that Texas law. It it may come back. It it was really a kind of procedural rejection, but nevertheless, that law is now in place. And I think we're going to see some big struggles between the pro-choice and the anti-abortion people in the United States and some very ugly scenes in Texas in particular. And Texas is an interesting place, an idea of where America is going, or at least parts of America are going, particularly on, on COVID. Uh, colleague yeah, should, of, we, should, we, should we segue to COVID? Good. Use good, that as a, as a very nice, yeah. very smooth. So a colleague of mine who actually produces the spin-off podcast that, I've, that I do this week was telling me he's planning a tour for his band through America in January. Jonathan Pierce is the guitar player for the Beths, who are a fantastic. Oh, I know. I've heard of them. Yeah, no, they. Yeah, I'm down with the young people, Bernard, as yeah. you know. So, uh, J- Jonathan and Anthony Tonin, who I profiled on a spin off podcast from a few weeks ago, are actually nominated for the Silver Scroll Awards for one of mm-hmm. their songs. Anyway, Jonathan was talking about planning this tour through America in January and how, in Texas in particular, they're having all sorts of problems getting the venues to agree to have vaccination rules yeah, for well, people Yeah, it's practically coming. illegal, isn't it? And the same in Florida. That's right. And also the business of mm. asking people to wear masks, mm. where this is something extraordinary, where you're not allowed to tell people that they should wear masks when they mm-hmm. come into your venue, your super spreader event, and you can't say whether or not they've had a vaccination. Now, it's really interesting because right now, in, in this week's um, podcast I've done for the spinoff, I talked to Kirk Hope, the CEO of Business New Zealand, and also the clinical director for Oceania Healthcare, who are New Zealand's second biggest retirement home and mm-hmm. aged care 
place. They're yeah. essentially saying if we're going to get anywhere over the 90% mark for vaccination, we're going to have mandatory vaccination rates. Mm. And the thing is, America is off the reservation when it comes to this stuff. You really do start to wonder how it can be how it can be sustained. And I noticed today in the one o'clock briefing, it was said by the health person that 71% of New Zealanders over 12 have now booked a, a vaccination. And, and the over 12 thing, I think, is very significant because many countries are not doing as young as 12. It's really only 18 and over. And of course, that's going to have tremendous impact potentially in the UK where uh, schools are about to go back and there's been very little pr pr provision again. So I, I fear where you've still got 35,000 cases a day in the UK that you're going to get a big spike as the schools go back. Yeah, and this is um, segueing into our own COVID situation. Yeah, um, I've been writing this week about what I think is a type of magical thinking which has developed inside and around government on the elimination strategy. Of course, we have to keep it right now because that's all we've got. It's the only protection we've got. And we need to get vaccination close to 100% because... Mm. A study for The Lancet on New Zealand situation found that even if we get our vaccination rate up to over 90%, which most people thought was uh, impossible even a few mm -hmm. months ago, uh, our um, hospitalisation rates from outbreaks would be quite high. They did some modelling. Yeah. We'd get 10 cases a day through the border. Our um, hospitalisation rates would be quite high. And over a two-year period, we'd have 200 people end up in ICU departments yeah. every six months and 500 deaths. Now, right now, even with the number of cases we've got, and thank goodness they were small today, mm -hmm. we can't handle enough. No, it would appear we can't. No, that's right. No. So, so we're in this situation where to keep the elimination strategy, we basically have to shut the borders completely. And this week we heard from Chris Hipkins that um, there will be no more mm. vouchers for MIQ given out unless you're in that absolutely, you know, crisis area of... It's a critical, up. it's a really critical period, Ben. And I, I, I wanted to ask, you, you wrote that piece maybe I think two weeks ago now where you talked about you got a, a fairly large amount of crap back about it because <laughs> it is extremely difficult to criticise a strategy. I think the Herald had a poll the other day which said that 90% of New Zealanders support the current strategy. But the risk is, Bernard, isn't there, that there's a lot of magical thinking there. You used that phrase. We didn't necessarily expect or prepare for a Delta outbreak, particularly amongst South Auckland people who often live in very large uh, interfamily, uh, multifamily houses, who often do essential work, work in sensitive places like the, the airport, and do uh, multiple jobs. And these people are essential workers and they're terrific people. We do all want this to work, of course, but is there a risk that it isn't going to work and that we haven't done the preparation adequately, either through vaccination, preparation in the hospital, that there's, there's been errors or errors of omission or errors of complacency? And I'm not absolutely... Judith Collins, of course, um, went ballistic the other day. And the reporter, when I looked at it, did seem to be quite on her case a little bit. But are we being too kind to the government and too mindful of the 90% of New Zealanders who support the current tactics? Yeah. When I say magical thinking, I'm talking about this idea that we can have elimination, mm. we can get rid of this outbreak, and we can go back to what we had for the last year or so, where we had pretty much complete freedoms, very low level of restrictions for a very long time. The, the problem, I think, is with Delta, 
we have a situation where it's so infectious that you need one breach through the border and then you have to lock down the entire nation basically for a month. And every time you get a breach, because the contact tracing and tracking systems cannot cope with that level of infection, every time you get a breach, you have to lock down everything. What it means, unless we get our vaccination rates to practically 100%, and even then that's not going to stop outbreaks, mm. we at some point are going to have to make this horrible decision, probably March, June next year, where we have got vaccination up as high as we possibly can, then we have to dial down the restrictions on the border and be and hope that our emergency care system can handle it. And I, I think at the moment there is this, and understandably, if you're the Prime Minister and you want everyone to lock down right now and treat it like a crisis, the last thing you want is any sort of doubt about whether or not we're yes. having elimination or not. Yes, and there's a very good, that's that's absolutely true. So we, we should reserve the right to talk about it and to ask the question, but you're absolutely right that they may not be ready to do it yet from a sort of messaging point of view, rather than that they are necessarily being misleading, you're absolutely right. They need to be consistent in the message. And I do think we all know, we all know this here, but perhaps because I uh, have spent a lot of time in the UK and watch what has happened with Boris Johnson in particular, the coherence of the messaging from Jacinda Ardern and from Ashley Bloomfield, whatever one thinks of them and whether they're sick of the team of 5 million and things, she has been astounding in her attention to detail and the coherence of her messaging. And I think that's been a huge reassurance to many people in New Zealand. Yeah, and it's happening again now in that we've had this extraordinarily uh, high response rate when it comes to um, the level four lockdowns. There's been very few breaches. The police are being more robust this time. But what, I've, what I think we can learn from this week is that, A, to maintain the elimination strategy with the infectiousness of Delta means dialing back our, our ability to contact and be in touch with the Conceivably, yes. Yep. Again, and, dialing back even more, you mean. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've seen these interesting stories coming out through stuff in the last week or two about all of those people overseas, the one million in the team of six million who may need to come home and not just for a holiday. We're talking coming no, no. home for funerals, for... And to push up house prices, yeah. Yeah. And also to say goodbye I to, to loved ones. It's, I know. Uh, I'm not... Yeah. And it's, it's a really interesting problem that we have now where we have built this perfect cage, if you like. Mm. It's a nice place to be in. Uh, but every time we think about whether we should leave, we're having to make the bars even thicker and harder to get through. And at some point, we're going to have I to think op we, open up that cage. Yeah, I think we need a philosopher to come and discuss this. Actually, it's really—it's a very—it's the prisoner's dilemma. Hamish Patel on this on the call makes the point that we either need—we need either need to make a decision that we can't afford lockdowns, or wait until we can't afford them. In a sense, that's I think the as you say, Bernard, the decision. Somebody we both know before today's much reduced figures were coming out was talking about a kind of linear purgatory that we would be just never quite knocking it on the head with a lockdown given the R number of and the uh, infectivity of, of Delta and also this issue of the intense, quite intense, closely knit communities that it's hitting in South Auckland. So it is an interesting problem and I um I, I don't have a perfect answer for it, but yeah. I I would it would be wonderful if it can be suppressed and eliminated again. But that will then require a period of reversal of some of the complacency and some absolutely passionate work on vaccination and the and attempts, I think, to get around the disinformation on, on vaccines. Now, speaking of which, this is another nice Good segue. segue. One of the most famous and successful podcasters in the world, apart from the two of us, 
is Joe Rogan, who is a kind of oh my goodness gritty, gritty tattooed oik from the United States, who has been very sceptical about COVID itself and very sceptical about COVID vaccinations. A New Zealand friend of mine said yesterday that his son had decided that if Joe wasn't getting vaccinated, he wouldn't get vaccinated. Of course, Joe hasn't disclosed whether he's been vaccinated or not, ah, but he has. Right. Yesterday like said that, yeah. That's right. He has yesterday said that he has COVID and lo and behold, he's taking the horse tranquilizer or horse drug, horse parasite treatment drug, Ivermectin, along with a couple of the other drugs and a couple of the other treatments that Trump took, which of course in, a, in the US system are only available to the richest people. So he says he's feeling pretty good, but again, he hasn't admitted whether or not he's been vaccinated. Interestingly, Merck, the company that used to be called Merck Sharp and Doan, has had to put out a statement um, saying that they do not support the use of ivermectin for COVID-19. There is no scientific basis for it and no meaningful evidence of uh, clinical e efficacy. And it's also potentially dangerous. I think somebody died in Australia today as a result of using ivermectin. Now, it doesn't mean it's not being investigated. It is used for treating, I think, Nile River fever or something like that in, in Africa. But I think we can safely say that since Merck is, I think, 69th biggest company in the world, that, or certainly in the US, that this is not an issue of big pharma trying to prevent ivermectin being used. No, and this is a virus <laughs> that people are using a parasite treatment to treat, which That's of right. course is nuts. And it would appear to be nuts. Just, just advocate, because I think the FDA has said it's looking at it still, but there's no evidence for it. The FDA has recommended it not be used, but it's just, it isn't approved. There is an approved or multiple approved vaccines. Get on with it. Yeah. This is where I have this view, Peter, that to get that vaccination rate really high, we need to do some things that actually restrict people's freedoms because our freedoms are already very restricted. No, and continue to you be always restricted. go down these, you know, coercive well, socialist methods. Yeah. I think having the you know, nudge is far better for this, particularly in New Zealand. But we're not going to get to 95% plus with nudge. And this is why I think, and I agree with Business New Zealand and many of these people in the healthcare sector, that in some high risk, high volume areas like healthcare, vaccination should be mandatory. And in some of these really big workplaces, for example, you know, retail and hospitality, who's going to go into a crowded restaurant with the doubt about whether someone's being vaccinated or whether they're not wearing a mask when they should be wearing a mask, um, yeah. at least for now, particularly when, as we heard this week, there are new variants coming up. <coughs> a new, new one, I think, was C12, which will be um, which has been labelled Mu, which will come up. And the other thing, of course, and, and this will not make me with you, Peter, but if we've got such virulent misinformation... And we know from... Oh, are you going to slag Facebook off again? Oh, no, I'm not going to yeah. slag them off. I'd just like to ban them. No. Yeah. The, the survey that came out today from New Zealand on air showing what younger Pacifica and Māori people are actually watching, what are the channels they're watching, how they're getting their information, and the surveys we're hearing back from um, people in the South Auckland community about the levels of misinformation, particularly amongst young people, mm -hmm. show that the very high use of YouTube and of Facebook as a place for not just entertainment but information is causing real harm in New Zealand. Yeah, and which is exactly why stuff, which I do some work with, has gone back onto Facebook and to try and counter some of that disinformation, and I think that's exactly the right strategy. I think it's also the only strategy. So banning them is not an option, nor no, is regulating no, I'm, I'm feasible, not, Bernard. No, <laughs> I'm not actually suggesting that we ban them out, but I certainly would love to see them regulated in the same way that other media in New Zealand mm. are regulated, where are we as uh, professional media 
company players, we have to make sure that we're not defaming people, that uh, if that we're accountable for the information we get out there. Mm-hmm. Whereas these platforms, they are publishers. They're not just hosts. Yeah, and Kane on our list of comments then says that he's noted a lot of conspiracy meme suggestions. I've seen them as well. And I think his earlier point where he says, are we just going to get to the point of high vaccination rates open up and then say, oh, our hospitals are getting overrun. I think the answer to that is no, but I'm not absolutely convinced it's worth spending $450 million um, getting rid of the DHBs when that money could possibly be used to improve some of the hospitals that we're going to do. I, I wouldn't mind betting that the reconstruction of the DHBs gets shelved for a while in order to focus on actual delivery, not theoretical political delivery. But uh, that might, you may know better than that, Bernard. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's a, a time of change inside government and they're running as fast as they can to deal with all this stuff. For example, just today, Grant Robertson announced some tweaks to the wage subsidy scheme to help out a few more smaller businesses, particularly ones that have just started in the last year. Self-employed podcasters included in that, do you think? Absolutely. You know, Excellent. Um, Good. Th- some of the biggest Bernard. claimants of the wage subsidy have been uh, sole traders and we're definitely in that, in that point. In fact, Grant Robertson confirmed today that we're up to now $1.75 billion in cash that's been handed out in wage subsidies and resurgence payments. Yeah. Now, that's not as fast as it could have been. Uh, Grant Robertson says that the rate in which it could have gone out is uh, $2 billion a um $2 billion a fortnight. Yeah. Can we ask him sometime about the money going to the City Impact Church and the uh, various other... Various other rotters. And it's worth knowing everyone. I don't think rotters is a defamatory term. No, no, rot, rotters is rotters fine. Are, yeah, it's like good. CAD. And, you know, these businesses collectively have $110 billion in the bank. It just makes me a little You mean that's bit... just Brian Tamaki's church? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the impact one that's anti-vax mm. as well. Mm. This is the irony. You've got anti-vax organisations claiming the wage subsidy. That's right. But... That's exactly right, Jonathan. We are talking... Yeah, City Imp- David Farrier did some very good work on this in his Webworm uh, blog showing how much money the City Impact Church had got from the wage subsidies and various others and connecting that to the people in the pulpit communicating vaccine hesitancy. Now, it's just gone four o'clock. That's um, half an hour into the podcast. And we said that we would open up the last 15 minutes for discussion, questions from anyone. Um, Did we say that? I, I'm quite keen on it. 15, yeah, okay. 15 minutes. All right. Is that all right? Yeah, as long as they don't play their bloody music. <laughs> right. Otherwise, I'll play mine. <laughs> um, Not to sound too Sean Plunkett about no, it. No, no, we don't want that. I would very much welcome you either writing down your questions. Now, there's been a few questions and comments coming in there. Hopefully, mm. we've answered them as we've come. But please do throw us your questions. Sorry, Bernard. While they're doing that, I thought we, we've also got that interesting story that we've addressed a couple of times about China cutting cutting back on the technology sector. We've we've got Jack Ma effectively silenced. Ant Financial is being is having some state or government directors appointed to its board. There's a new stock exchange being talked about in China in order to help Chinese companies avoid the unwise listings in, in Washington and New York. What's going on there? And this is all about Xi Jinping and his his uh, desire to keep the Communist Party in control of everything. We keep forgetting that he's a Marxist-Leninist dictator and that capitalism with Chinese characteristics is actually just communism. And he's been very diligent and direct about bringing these tech companies back under the control of the state of China. So those companies that have listed offshore, he's saying no more of 
of that, you have to come back. And also really getting into the guts of these tech companies to make sure that the information is controlled by the state. For example, this week, this is an extraordinary story that I, I'm surprised there hasn't got more coverage here. Mm. The Chinese state is ordering online games companies to limit the amount of time that people spend playing games to mm. three hours a week. Particularly children, yes, yeah. absolutely. Can you imagine how the games companies are going to try and do that? I just can't quite see how they would. Yeah, well, I've limited it to a particular time each day so that mm -hmm. all of these online players can play together. But it's an extraordinary thing. And the other thing, of course, is that the Xi Jinping has talked about this phrase, common prosperity. He wants China to be a place with common prosperity, which yeah. really is code for redistribution of income and keeping these tech businesses. Anyone would box. think they were communists. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's what There's we're been, there was an interesting story in the FT this week of a, there's a, 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 a hardline Chinese nationalist blogger, and his blogs were picked up and rebroadcast by Xinhua, the state news agency, the People's Daily, and CCTV, which is the, the state network. And just to read you a quote from it, describing these this this crackdown on capitalism and these tech companies. It says, quotes, this is a transformation from capital-centered to people-centered, and anyone who sought to block the reforms would be, quotes, discarded, close quotes. <laughs> so there's a kind of cultural revolution sense to this as well, and it will be very interesting to see the extent to which this is popular with ordinary Chinese people in as much as one can gain access to the views of ordinary Chinese people. Yeah. If, if you look at it from a distance, you could argue that we're in a form of late stage capitalism in the rest of the world. And if you're a 18, 19 year old, you're a renter, got no chance of ever owning your own home. You see mm. all of the government interventions to help the rich get richer and not help you much at all. For example, even in New Zealand, we've mm. had a government that's paid out $1.75 billion to business owners, most of including Brian Tamagat, to business owners who most likely own their own properties. Most mm. small business owners in New Zealand own their own properties. And and the house prices, as we've seen in figures out this week... Are you going on about house prices again? Oh, we don't have an economy. We've got a housing market with bits mm. tacked on. And Pakistan is a military with a country tacked on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen through CoreLogic, the numbers show that as soon as we had the lockdown, the housing market didn't actually stop. Mm. It actually picked up. And real estate agents are reporting in a survey that the FOMO, fear of missing out measures that real estate agents have gone up because of what we saw happen last time. So if you're a 18, 19 year old kid and you're thinking, gee, how should we be running our societies and economies? You look to China, where they've lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. You've got a, uh, a leader there who mm. actually seems to be serious about trying to uh, redistribute wealth and keep these tech billionaires under control. It must look, if you're... It's seductive, yeah. yeah. And uh, not that I'm suggesting that we do that, but right now we don't have much of a lead yeah, to stand on. Yeah, are you a sleeper? I'm sleeping, that's yeah. right. Just look over Claude Springer. Did you see that question from him? Bernard, has the lockdown been long enough and done enough damage to, re to delay rate rises? That's a good question. Most of the rest of the country's economists just think that this was just a hiccup and that come October the 6th and again in November with the next monetary policy statement, there will be rate hikes. I think that the damage to the economy is building. 
as we head towards six weeks in level four lockdown in Auckland. And I think that it's quite likely we won't see a rate hike this year. You've got to remember, it's not just in New Mm. Zealand, but in the rest of the world, there is uh, real concerns about what Delta is doing. No one's suggesting there'll be rate hikes in Australia or um, America or in Europe in the next year or so. In fact, the Americans are still printing money at a rate of 120 billion US a month. The Australians are still printing money at a rate of 5 billion Australian, and we're expecting next week the Reserve Bank of Australia to come back and say, no, we're going to have to keep it loose, guys, because the economy's under pressure. Australia's going to have a recession in the second half of this year. So I actually don't think we're going to see the rate hikes that everyone talks about, and certainly Mm. not to the extent that people are talking about. And that just fuels extra demand for housing. And Paul Kennedy here, you know, is making not so much a question as as an assertion, which is very similar to yours, which is that young people in the West could be excused wondering whether capitalism and democracy has been very effective in stopping massive generational wealth transfer. That's the guts of it. Mind you, the the biggest levels of inequality in the world right now in the large economies is in China. Um, The most billionaires created in the last decade have been in China. And, um, And that's exactly what she is trying to deal with here. Exactly. Yeah. Now, so we saw last night Alibaba come out and say they were going to give $15 billion to various um, social causes, basically to stay on the right side of G. Not that I'm suggesting we go down that track, but I th- I think there's a lot of complacency amongst the sort of, for the want of a better word, global elite of the Western countries who've convinced themselves that they've managed to get through this latest mm. crisis and there's nothing to stop us. Look at the low unemployment. Look at the... Yeah, funny enough, I was thinking, Bernard, yesterday, uh, watching those appalling scenes in the US with the floods in New York, that... Again, you have to think, I I know it's too easy to be, okay, I'm going to do a hot take here. (laughs) Afghanistan and the New York floods do suggest that there's a bit of decline going on there, let alone the civilizational decline with something like the Texas thing. Yeah, yeah. This is the thing, we've failed horribly on the climate change uh, thing. And uh, all the the other interesting news out in New Zealand this week is that our emissions trading scheme has suddenly started working and suddenly the price has jumped over $50 a tonne, so much so the government had to release a whole bunch of free credits into the system to do that, or not free credits, auctioned them into the system to, to do that. But, I mean... It seems every day now we've got these massive climate events happening mm. all around the world. Yep. But still, we're going to go to the uh, Glasgow. It's just conference. the weather. It's just the weather, Bernard. We've always had weather. And <laughs> so we've got John Graham asking whether the money printed and pumped into economies is subtracted from GDP figures. And I think the answer is no. No, it's not counted in GDP. So GDP is a measure of production or spending mm. as opposed to assets. And my way of um, describing what's happening right now is that this, the world's central banks have printed upwards of uh, $25 trillion, which is about the equivalent of one times US GDP over the last 15 years, and more than half of that has been in the last 18 months. That money has been printed to buy government bonds from banks and pension funds. They've then got that cash, and they've thought, what do I do with my money? I'm old, I'm risk-averse, I know I'll put it back in the bank. Mm. So when you actually look at that $25 trillion in, in, uh, in cash that's being printed, it hasn't circulated into the economy and generated inflation in goods and services. It has been put into dead assets, if you like, assets that are essentially stores of wealth, like property and art and all sorts of things, or non-fungible tokens mm. and cryptocurrency. 
currencies. And we are in this sort of bizarre, almost wily coyote moment with Western capitalism where we can all see this money being printed and we're all going, that can't be right, can it? And we're waiting. We're all waiting for the five-ton anvil to hit us on the head. Yes, yes. Yeah, which um, it hasn't hap- hap- done no. yet. No, and, and the irony is... We all think it's going to happen, but we've we know that these central banks have got our back, and we've got this extraordinary situation now, where whenever there's some slightly bad economic news, we see global financial markets rise. Not because they like bad economic news, because they know that when there's bad economic news, a central bank will increase its rate of printing money and therefore push up the value of assets. And the same is, is true here in New Zealand, even though the Reserve Bank here has stopped printing money. It's now actually had to announce today that it is going to further tighten the LVR restrictions for mm-hmm. owner-occupiers, not for first-home buyers, which means it's politically okay, but that owner-occupiers will find it more difficult to get the very high LVR loans that they've been getting in a position where the central banks print money, they see asset prices go up, they then have to intervene in the bowels of the banking system to reduce the amount of lending into the banking the system. The bowels of the banking system, that's just conjured up a really hideous image in my mind. Thank yeah, you. unfortunately, it's more like a spreadsheet. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. 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 <laughs> and so there is certainly this weird, we're all looking at it, going, looking at each other going, that can't go on, can it? That just makes no sense whatsoever, but it does. And if you think it's going to end somewhere, you just look at how it would end. And the only way it could end is in a market collapse. But of course, we know that the central banks and the governments have got our backs by either printing the money or releasing those lending restrictions to ensure that asset prices stay home. Bernard, um, did you see David Appleyard is raising a a thing that's happened in the UK, which is that with the kids going back to school, but and what are they doing for a catch-up plan? And they have a complete moron who was the uh, Secretary of State for Education who is famous for having a tarantula called Kronos and causing an HR an HR crisis in the defence ministry when he was the defence secretary because he had arachnophobic staff members who freaked out when he was... <laughs> Uh, anyway, I digress slightly, only very slightly. So that can be the skateboarding dog. So I don't think New Zealand has the same problem because the schools haven't been closed for kind of 11 months successively. So I think the catch-up plan here, I don't, New Zealand has some very low ratings, doesn't it, Bernard, overall in it, some educational achievement areas. But is there any evidence that's actually been affected by COVID or is it just that there needs to be more effective investment in education? It's too early to say on COVID, but Mm. it's clear we're well down the lists on mathematics and uh, literacy. And that's partly because of the um, growing number of uh, people in intergenerational uh, poverty situations, the very Mm. poor housing areas, and also the amount of kids who are bouncing from school to school because they've been kicked out of private rentals all the time. It, It will hurt, no doubt. Probably not as much as overseas, as Peter points out. Of course, that assumes that we're going to come out of these lockdowns yes. and stay yes, six, 12 months while we get the vaccination rate ups, uh, rates up. I actually don't think that's going to happen because this thing is so darn infectious. Mm. And we saw that that level of underlying nervousness yesterday when this guy escaped from an MIQ facility. And we've just had a, a one o'clock press conference with most of it. People asking questions about how he got out. Yeah, you know, yeah. How and then did being he dobbed get... in by his own family? That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
And he walked home. Yeah. He walked all yeah. the way and, home. And because of, because of the prevalence of CCTV, they know he didn't meet anybody. Now, look, Bernard, I've got to go and do something sure. else. So I just let's finish with, let's make one skateboard skateboarding dog story, which is a kind of de- de- deeply depressing one, which is not only has, uh, or just as Texas has set itself on fire by ban- effectively banning abortion, it, from yesterday, gun owners can now bear arms publicly without pay. permits or training wow you can have your gun and you can and have it publicly available and you don't have to have training you don't have to have a license no worries just go on and you can make sure that if anyone asks you to wear a mask you just brandish the gun yeah yeah that's what yeah yeah try come and take it all right bernard thank you very much everybody on the call thank you thank you very much thanks peter brilliant cheers thanks to everyone see you next week